It's been one year since the murder of George Floyd. And this past week, across the country, Americans have gathered to honor him. And yesterday, Floyd's family, including his brother, Felonis, went to the White House. We met with the president and the, and the VP. It was just for the remembrance of what happened to my brother, because this was his day that he was murdered. President Biden has called for police reform. He hopes that some of that reform will come through a bill called the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. But it hasn't passed the Senate. Beyond legislation, the federal government is limited in what it can do to bring change to the 12,000 local police departments around the country. But there is one important tool the Biden administration is already using. The Justice Department's mandate to investigate police departments. The Biden administration has said repeatedly that it wants to make police reform a top priority and has been pushing for measures in Congress that haven't come to fruition. That means the administration is relying heavily on the Justice Department as its most powerful tool to force cities to change. But this strategy can involve high costs, heavy federal intervention, and is sometimes met with resistance. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Wednesday, May 26th. Coming up on the show, what the Biden administration is doing to answer calls for police reform. This episode is brought to you by Workday. Get the whole band together with Workday and pair finance and HR on one platform for an epic performance. With Workday AI at the core, you'll make confident decisions faster than ever, and you'll drive flawless business and finance operations with an agile platform that constantly evolves to future-proof your organization. Be a finance and HR rock star with Workday. Visit Workday.com to learn more. To pursue police reform, the Biden administration is using a tactic that emerged in the years after the police beating of Rodney King in L.A. It was part of the sweeping 1994 crime bill. That bill gave the attorney general the power to investigate not only the conduct of individual police officers, but the conduct throughout police departments, entire departments. That's our colleague Sadie Gurman. And she says in the decades since, the DOJ has investigated dozens of departments. They typically work like this. The DOJ starts something called a pattern or practice investigation, looking for civil rights violations in police departments. One of the most famous examples happened after the 2014 fatal shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. The Justice Department not only investigated the actual shooting of Mr. Brown by the police officer in that case, but also then decided, you know, look, there, this has actually unearthed a series of problems with the way the courts and the police departments deal with the citizens in this community. And it might be worth taking a closer look, not just at that case alone, but at the policies of the department and the courts. The DOJ investigations often start after a high-profile incident, like the shooting of Michael Brown. 
Justice Department officials will actually go on ride-alongs, talk to community groups, talk to officers and their supervisors. They'll sort of pour over police manuals and training and procedures and use of force policies and things like that and really do a sort of a top-to-bottom review of the police department's policies. If the investigation finds misconduct in a police force, that's when the DOJ pushes for the next phase of the process, the consent decree which is a legally binding list of reforms that the DOJ prescribes to the local police department. If you think of the investigation as the diagnosis, the consent decree is the treatment. These consent decrees essentially put the city on the hook to make a number of different changes to things like use of force or the way that officers are held accountable and disciplined. Consent decrees can force a range of changes, such as requiring officers to better document when they use force of any kind or to only use force in certain situations. They can require more training and more technology, like body cameras or video cameras inside police vans. Other agreements have required police to change how officer-involved shootings are investigated. How do police departments feel about them? So, you know, it it depends on um, where you sit, how you feel about this as a police officer. The chiefs in many of these cities and the mayors certainly have welcomed this type of work. But of course, you know, if you're a rank-and-file police officer, you're actually the person that's on the street, you might feel a little differently. What I hear from police unions and from rank-and-file officers is that this can often cause them to feel like they are under increased scrutiny and that they don't always want to be as proactive as possible when they have the Justice Department sort of looking over their shoulder like this. They don't want to be become the next viral video of a high-profile police encounter. And so some police officers feel like these investigations kind of are demoralizing and um, certainly don't offer them an immediate incentive to, you know, really be aggressive and go after violent criminals. The Obama administration entered into more than a dozen of these consent decrees with cities like New Orleans, Seattle, and Cleveland. The Trump administration, in contrast, felt that that was unfair to force local municipalities to make costly changes. Under President Trump, this tactic was scaled back. In four years, Trump's Justice Department only opened one of these investigations. The Trump Justice Department saw a much more limited role for the federal government in civil rights enforcement. For many police unions, this was a welcome change. Many of these police officers certainly felt like they had a very close ally in the Trump administration. And now, the Biden administration appears to be leaning heavily on the DOJ to drive police reform. Last month, the Justice Department made two major announcements. The Biden administration now investigating two local police departments, Louisville Metro and Minneapolis, probing for excessive force and discrimination. The DOJ was opening investigations into both Minneapolis and Louisville, the cities that saw the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. To understand the DOJ's strategy, Sadie sat down for an interview with Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta, the number three person in the Justice Department. And she recorded it. All right. Well, I guess let's just get to business here. It's been a year since George Floyd was killed by a former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin. Where do things stand in the U.S. on police reform as of now? I think there is incredible momentum for police reform right now. There's obviously a lot of expectation as a result of events last summer. And We've seen over the past year, states around the country take action to look at their 
policing practices and policies. We've seen law enforcement really lead on some important questions of use of force and technology and bias in policing. And so I, you know, while we still have a lot of progress to make, and these are longstanding, quite entrenched issues for the United States, I am optimistic about the future. While the Justice Department is preparing to launch more of these pattern or practice investigations, you're also gearing up for what some officials have described as a summer of violence. You know, homicides and shootings are up in major cities. Generally speaking, is this the right time to push for police reform? It is really dangerous for people to look at police reform and violence intervention or prevention as somehow on opposed issues. When the community trusts that officers in the criminal justice system are fair, are accountable, community members are more willing to cooperate and engage with law enforcement, and they're less likely to seek justice elsewhere. They're more likely to comply with the law. And it's why the Justice Department's various tactics to both ensure constitutional policing, to fight violent crime, are deeply intertwined. And we will not be able to succeed on one strategy without the other. And so for us, this is part of one holistic strategy to keep communities safe and healthy. So, I mean, at least sort of anecdotally speaking, you hear officers say that after high-profile incidents that they are sort of reluctant to proactively pursue crime-fighting efforts or, um, you know, even sort of less motivated to be aggressive or be proactive on the street. I guess I just wonder sort of what you make of that concern and if there's a way to take on this kind of police reform without causing officers to second-guess themselves or stop doing what they're supposed to do. You know, I heard a lot of this concern after the Justice Department's engagement in Ferguson and in Baltimore. And what we continued to see was officers rushing into danger every day uh, and continuing to do their jobs. I think that uh, we have to be concerned about the morale of officers. Police officers are frontline workers. They were essential workers during the pandemic, and it, it took a real toll, unquestionably. A lot of the consent decrees In fact, I think all of the recent ones have actually included support for officer wellness and mental health services and to ensure that they have the support that they need in their jobs. It's sort of on the flip side of that criticism, you know, some on the left especially would say that the Justice Department's not doing enough and a push for more sweeping changes, such as defunding the police and reducing officers' ranks. Is that something the Justice Department would support? And can you kind of elaborate on what else the Justice Department intends to do to force police departments to change? This administration doesn't support defunding the police, and we are committed to providing the resources that law enforcement needs to do their job safely and constitutionally, whether that means increased training, mental health resources for officers, updated equipment, and the like. We've been working on a lot of issues that are at the forefront of police reform debate for many years now, and that includes ensuring that officers are not burdened with responsibilities that they aren't equipped to handle and have the adequate resources to handle the stresses of their jobs. So what's next? I mean, should we expect more pattern or practice investigations? And sort of what are the benchmarks or indicators that will show the public that this approach is succeeding? So the pattern or practice investigation tool is just one of many tools that the Justice Department has. And we will continue to refine our metrics. We're always learning and we're always open to 
assessing. We know there is no perfect police department. It's unrealistic for anyone to expect that there would be, but is there the ability to learn and self-correct when problems are detected? These are some of the things that we seek to put in place, and we are constantly learning from the field. But what is it actually like for a police department to operate under one of these consent decrees? That's after the break. Brian O'Hara has worked in the Newark, New Jersey Police Department for two decades. I think for most of my career, we had a very serious crisis around legitimacy. I think it spans much longer than my career. Brian started out as a patrol officer and worked his way up to be commanding officer of the Metro Division. And he traces the problems with policing in Newark to a specific event more than 50 years ago. It's very, it's historical. It's built up over decades in this city. In July, July 12th of 1967, we had the Newark Rebellion erupt. The rebellion followed a police beating of a black taxi driver. And, you know, within the next three or four days, 26 people died, hundreds of people were injured, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in in property damage occurred. And ever since then, I think there's been people living their lives, literally for the last 54 years, trying to have a voice around establishing more legitimacy, trying to have a voice in ensuring that there's meaningful community uh, civilian oversight of the police here. And in 2016, following a federal investigation, the Newark Police Department did start to change when it came under a consent decree. The federal government released their findings report, which showed all sorts of unconstitutional practices by the Newark police. And so we, we had a mayor that comes from a family here that already believed in reform and wanted to make these changes anyway. And the consent decree kind of gave, like, court backing to invest the money needed to go the whole way. How did the rank-and-file officers respond to the consent decree? It was very difficult. There was definitely pushback. When we first started to implement body cameras, there wasn't buy-in. There was changes with the use of force policy where there were requirements now whenever an officer unholstered his weapon, he had to report it. And all these sorts of changes initially... The reaction was from a lot of senior officers, literally, you're going to get a cop killed. That's what people told me, that cops are going to be afraid to act. They're going to have their cameras on. They're going to be hesitant. They're going to be afraid to pull their gun. And you're literally going to have cops' funerals because of this stuff. But Brian says that's not what happened. The cops thought that the body camera program, once it was fully implemented, was just going to be nothing but trouble for them. And it's the opposite. About 40% of the time when citizens make complaints against the police... They can look at the video and internal affairs and immediately exonerate the officers. So that, in combination with the training, we've implemented 40 hours of additional training every single year for every sworn officer. And the additional training, the officers absolutely love it because they weren't getting that at all before. But that doesn't mean there wasn't change. Since the consent decree, Brian says half of the city's police are new officers. What are the biggest downsides of the consent decree process? I mean, me personally, I feel like the the biggest downside is it's kind of like a consent decree gets dropped on your city and you're left to figure it out. Like, it doesn't come with an instruction manual, right? It comes with a price tag. Like, you have to pay to be monitored, right? The city of Newark in the consent decree says, 
We have to pay the monitoring team $7.4 million over the course of five years to be monitored. So that's in there. Then to actually do anything, it costs money. Like we talked about, you know, implementing 40 hours of training for all of our sworn members every year. That costs money. All this stuff costs money. Given that violent crime is on the rise, is now the time to pursue, for the Justice Department to pursue consent decrees? Um, I, I, well, I think it is problematic when you have issues around, uh, again, going back to you need to have police legitimacy and a sense of legitimacy with your community in order to have public safety, right? So the two kind of do go hand in hand. I don't think they're, you know, they're antithetical to each other. But you also need to ensure that there is a sense that the community feels like the police are a legitimate authority, that they are held accountable to the community, and they are not out here policing in a way that ultimately will lead to more violence, right? Because if no one is willing to cooperate with the police, our jobs are a whole lot harder. Because when serious crime happens and no one wants to tell us what's going on and no one wants to partner with us and no one wants to try and diffuse situations and and help us restore safety in the community, it's not going to work. So I think without having both, you're going to wind up doing the same thing we've always done and expecting different results. Our colleague Sadie says the stakes are high for the Justice Department when it comes to police reform. So as we mark the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death, it seems clear the Biden administration is trying to walk a fine line between showing that it is making police reform a top priority without promoting a message that it wants to defund the police or somehow discourage officers from fighting violent crime at a time when violence is on the rise. It's going to be challenging for the Justice Department to send a message to the local police that we're here to sort of help you, that this is not necessarily a way to undermine you. That's all for today, Wednesday, May 26th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. If you like our show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We're out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.